thank you for listening to and tuning into the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, and getting your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Foss, and I'm a licensed therapist here in California. And um, I am super excited, especially excited that you're tuning in for this episode. This is an episode that um, I, I've been working on for a while. This uh, is going to be kicking off a faith and doubt series that uh, I, I wanted to do to talk about issues pertaining to, um, as the title suggests, faith and doubt, and also the fears that people have regarding that. So this is a series we're going to be doing where we're going to be uh, talking to um, uh People of various faith backgrounds, and particularly uh, faith leaders uh, in, in in their uh, respective backgrounds, um, and talking about issues of doubt and how it not only not only occurs to those with um, OCD or a diagnosable anxiety disorder, scrupulosity, things like that, but also how faith is just. Um, in, in inherently tied to doubt uh, and vice versa. So uh, we're going to be getting into that shortly. To no surprise, then, if anybody is uh, uncomfortable listening to issues of faith or of, of religious conversations or things like that, particularly as this episode is going to be talking about a particularly uh, Christian background, we're going to be going over a number of different faith backgrounds in future episodes, by the way, but um, there will be explicit Christian and religious conversation in this, so if that's not for you, that's totally fine. You can skip this episode, or rather, skip to the very end of this episode, because I'm, uh, I'm going to be playing an interview that I uh, I did a, a while ago with uh, Mike Erie. I'll tell you a little bit about him shortly. So as far as the itinerary for this episode, I'm going to be playing my interview that I had with Mike. Um, and then after the episode, I'm going to be explaining uh, a, a, a concept that, I, that we referred to in the episode, but uh, I, I didn't really go into in a previous episode, I realized. So I'm just going to be going over it briefly. And it's going to be talking about the various uh, or three levels of faith uh, described by a theologian named Dr. Alan Schultz. So I'll be going over that. And then after that, I'm going to be answering a question from a listener. So stay tuned for that. Or again, if a religious conversation is not for you, you can skip right ahead to that. All right. So not to make this episode any longer than it already has to be, let's jump into it. Pastor Mike Erie is a graduate of Biola University, where he received a master's in philosophy of religion and ethics. In addition to serving as the teaching pastor at several large churches in the Southern California area, he is the founder of the Vox Community Church in Orange County and is the host of the Vox Podcast, where he's no stranger in delving into issues of faith in a fearless and validating way. He is a rabid fan of all things Ohio sports, particularly Ohio State football, and he holds the belief that Pearl Jam is by far the best band that has ever walked the earth. I had the honor of speaking with him recently as part of the Faith and Doubt series. Here is my interview with Mike Erie. Uh, well, Mike here. Thanks so much for joining the Fearcast. Um, I had you on the on the uh, on the podcast to uh, answer a couple of questions about faith, about doubt, um, and uh, about the anxiety the anxieties that can result from both. Uh, you oh, are yeah. uh, an, an expert pastor. You are a uh, <laughs> a, 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 a theologian of of oh, the yeah. ages. So oh, I appreciate boy. you being here. Uh, that if we're if you keep that up, we're gonna have to change the name from fear cast to exaggeration cast. I, uh, because... We debated hyperbole cast as well, but you know this <laughs> this works too. Perfect. No, Kevin, I'm I'm honored to be here. Thank you for the invite. 
Absolutely. So you are a... uh so in this uh, uh, series I'm doing on faith and doubt, we're going to be interviewing uh, uh, pastors and priests of, of, uh, of, of a number of different uh, denominational backgrounds, uh, faith backgrounds as well. So uh, you are here as uh, as part of the Protestant um, uh, group. So I wanted to, I know, I know. So I wanted to just start out by asking if you could please, uh, in, in as few sentences as possible, uh, kind of for the listeners here to, to describe what it means to be a Christian. Oh man, that's such a great that's such a great question. Um, to to be a Christian literally means to want to follow, imitate, and um, and uh, love people like Jesus of Nazareth. And so it, it includes a set of beliefs, of course, that go into that. But it is primarily a way of living where we're patterning our life after this uh, fellow Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. Because I know a lot of folks will have that a lot of things that they'll attach to that about what it right. what it does mean to be a, a Christian, what it means right. to have salvation, and things like that. It, yeah. Would you add anything to that, or would you keep it as simple as that? Well, I mean, it, it, it's kind of like marriage, right? Uh, how how hard is marriage? Well, on the one hand, it's really really easy. You stand in front of a faith person or the court. And you verbalize a couple of promises and boom, you, you leave as a married person. Um, but on the other hand, it takes literally the rest of your life to figure out what that means and what that entails and how that works. And so I think, um, I, I think uh, uh, similarly with this Jesus fellow, uh, there is a very easy yes to this. Uh, that's like the marital covenant. And then there is also a, the lifelong investigation of what it means to have faith, be faithful, lean on God's faithfulness towards us. I mean, it's, it's so, so for me, the, the metaphors, when I grew up in a, a conservative Christian home, the primary metaphor was legal. And it was, um, you, have, you are guilty of sin. God sends you to death. God loves you, and so he sent Jesus to die for you, and you now have the opportunity to be right with God because of what Jesus did. Um, and, and certainly, that some of that imagery is used in the New Testament, but that's not primary. The primary uh, pictures are relational. Um, you were alienated, and now you've, brought, you've been brought near. You were, you were um, far away. Now you've been reconciled. You were without family, and now you're adopted. Um, you didn't know God. Now you know God. And so the marriage thing for me is kind of the best picture of of uh, what it means to say yes to this Jesus, and then reconfigure your whole life around that yes. And if if only it was that easy. <laughs> well, it's like marriage, right? Well, it is. And it's impossible all at the same time. <laughs> uh, I think that, uh, that, that uh, yes, I think that's a fantastic definition of it. Um, so, obviously, as we're talking about doubt, wanted to go just into what what role does, does doubt play in faith? Is there a role that doubt can play in one's faith? Kevin, that's a fantastic question. And absolutely, the Bible seems to distinguish between something I'll call unbelief and a different thing that we'll call doubt. Unbelief seems to be associated with stubborn, 
rebelliousness. It's like how many times God will say, have I shown you that I'm good and faithful and yet you still refuse to believe? Doubt, on the other hand, seems to be very welcomed into the life of faith. And, and the best way I can illustrate the difference is in the beginning of Luke, uh, the same angel appears to two different people, one an older male priest who should know better, and one a young peasant girl of no name, no significance whatsoever. Uh, and the, and the, the angel says to the old guy, hey, you're going to have a son. Uh, you know, it's, he and his wife were infertile. Um, and he asks the question, well, how can I be sure? And, uh, and the angel gives him a sign, and the sign is his muteness. Um, he shuts him up uh, because he didn't believe, okay? The, the same angel, so he says, you're going to be mute until the child is born. That's the sign that this will come true, um, which is a bit, uh, a bit disciplining feeling. It's right? A little harsh. A little harsh. Yeah, although I'm sure, I'm sure mom liked it because the mom got two gifts that day. She's pregnant and the husband can't talk. Um, um, and then Mary, this teenage girl, gets a similar announcement. Hey, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. And she asked the question, well, how can that be since I'm a virgin? And so, so the how will I know um, can, can be a way of expressing like a hardness of heart or what the Bible will call a stiff neck where you simply refuse to take the step even though God has graciously given you all that you need to do so. Mary seems to exhibit a con- kind of a confusion that, that reflects faith, but is still, I don't know my way through this in faith. And so, so you see this perfectly displayed in the Psalms, right? The Psalms are filled with God where are you and God why have you abandoned us but notice all of those are expressions of faith right even though they're doubting they're doubting God's goodness it seems like you've abandoned me it seems like you've gone silent on me those come from actually within the greater context of hey I actually believe God that you're out there and that you're not like this and so why are you being like this Uh, as opposed to somebody who would simply simply say as an excuse of course well you know unless god writes it you know in a cloud uh i'm not going to do jack squat so is it the, the the first kind of um i'll call unbelieving mm-hmm. uh is often rebuked by god and by jesus when the disciples would you know go dude we've seen you do miracles and yet you know we're still shocked <laughs> um and and yet those same disciples at the end of the book of matthew when jesus gives this beautiful mission to his people you know go to all the world and make disciples right before that it says you know jesus had risen from the dead you know he taught for uh weeks um his disciples and it said they they were at this mountain they were worshiping him but still some doubted um and and there's a great and, and and jesus doesn't rebuke them in their doubt he actually commissions them even in the midst of their doubt Again, it's not the unbelieving kind of doubt, but it was the doubt like the, if I may, WTF kind of doubt. Like, you may. this is not, this is, what, what, what do you, what? No, no one was expecting this. Come on, man. And so, of course, and, and even in Jude, it says, you know, have mercy on those who doubt. So there is a deep vein of grace for all of us who um, wrestle with how to put all this together, of course there is. And I would argue it's necessary for faith to become real. 
that if it's just cliched, naive um, sort of faith, that's great for a season. But once real life hits and, you know, you see the suffering of the world, then it's very natural for many of us uh, to go back to the faith we were handed and go, what? I'm not, how, how? if God's really good, then why? You know, and that, that to me is very much welcome in the life of faith. So like specifically kind of going back to the beliefs that you had, or you grew up with or were given and asking really hard questions about whether or not, what of that is true? What of that can be, what of that may, now what happens when we get to the, that, that, that mucky section where it's, you know, it's a, a, what if none of this is true? What if some of this, what if this is true, but this feels, this other thing yeah. feels inaccurate? Yes. Oh, that's, that's a great question. Kind of gets into that slippery slope section that can scare Absolutely. a lot of folks. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there are many who, because of the way the world is and or because of the way the Christian faith has been presented will go to that, well, I can't believe in science and the faith, so I'll believe science. Mm-hmm. Or I, 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 I love my, my gay neighbor, and if the Bible told me to hate my gay neighbor, then so much for the Bible, right? Um, so on the one hand, I would say that God, um, through the writers of the scripture, is very clear that there aren't, not, that, that there are, um, more important beliefs than others. And so um, when Paul uh, argues to uh, this church in the ancient city of Corinth, he's like, guys, okay, this resurrection thing like is kind of the hinge of the whole thing. Like if it didn't happen, we're still in our sins. We're to be pitied. I mean, we're lying about God. I mean, come on. Um, but he doesn't say that about whether you believe Noah and the ark uh, literally was a universal flood or not. It doesn't mm. say whether or not you believe that God used evolution or not. And so what, what the American church has mistakenly done, and, and it's, it's always been the temptation of the people of God. It's not just us, but we've packed in to the, uh, the core of the Christian faith, a lot of peripheral issues that we've made central, mm. right? So are the days in Genesis six literal days or not, right? And if, if you don't believe they are, then you don't believe the Bible. Well, that's just not true. First of all, the Bible leaves it very wide open. Secondly, the Bible isn't teaching cosmology in the modern sense. Thirdly, uh, nowhere in the scriptures does it make that a point of emphasis in terms of whether or not you become part of the covenant people. And so there is a great deal of uh, we're reaping the the way that we've presented the Christian faith as an entire huge big package that we've smuggled in cultural, um, political, militaristic assumptions that that more reflect 21st century America than they do um, the the actual teachings of the first century rabbi. There's a lot in that. Oh, man. <laughs> See, Mike, this is why I'm glad, I'm glad I had you on. You're bringing the hot fire this morning. So, <laughs> so I mean, so with, with, with all of that, I mean, kind of the, this idea of, of um, as you said, like the American church has packed in a lot of things. And I know in a previous sure. podcast of yours, you've talked about the you know three levels of, of, of belief. Or, uh, yes, yeah, that's right. And I, I, I think that's fantastic. And I think I've referenced that on a previous episode, or I will. But the... I'm curious then with these two things, how can, what are some things that you and I can be certain of then? How, oh, where does certainty boy. come into play? 
That is fantastic. Okay. Um, certainty is a tricky word because uh, certainty can often be packed with the idea that I never doubt. And that means to, what it means to mm-hmm. be certain is to mean that I never doubt. Right. That's not what it means to be certain. What it means to be certainty is not just an intellectual exercise, but it's a volitional exercise. It's just like love, right? Love, I love my wife, uh, and I'm certain that I love my wife, but I'm not certain that I love my wife because I feel lovingly towards her, but I'm certain that I love my wife because I have, over time, progressively and gradually oriented my entire life around her and have grown to be a loving husband and have come to believe that regardless of how I'm feeling today Mm. or even if i'm acting weird today that overall the trajectory of my life is that i very much love her and so i'm certain of that but not because i've convinced myself of some psychological like level where that there's no room for doubt although i would i don't doubt anymore that i love my wife but but doubt is spelled out in a different sense altogether in that kind of conversation so so certainty if it means intellectual i'll never doubt this then no that's never the goal the goal is faith Faith isn't blind. Faith is confidence in something reasonable. We exercise it all the time. It's not a religious thing. Uh, It's a human thing, right? I step on the brake and I have faith that, and how do I know I have faith? Well, because I step on the brake. Practice. Uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, on the one hand, certainty isn't the goal. Uh, And when we make it the goal, and I've made it the goal of teaching and, you know, uh, all the stuff we do in churches, Mm. Um, that that makes faith very, very threatened by pieces of information that we didn't know before um, or p- stories that I've never heard before of, of what it was like to grow up gay in an evangelical church, right? And then all of a sudden, I have to go back and reexamine. I'm just suggesting that the kind of relational certainty I'm talking about um, comes, and, and, and I don't know if it's for everybody, but it certainly is for me, through the simple... Um, examination of the beauty of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, it really is. Like, at the end of the day, I came to Jesus through Christianity, but I've had to get rid of some Christianity to keep hold of this Jesus because you realize there's a, a divergence between the two. And the goal of, of many of us, and, and, and certainly this podcast, is to try to peel as much as we can uh, off uh, away some of the layers of culture, tradition um, that, that have accumulated over 2,000 years to say, okay, well, if you just, and so I, so I will, you know, tell people all the time, listen, don't start your Bible in Genesis for crying out loud. Just start in Matthew, keep a sheet of paper next to you and just write down every single question, every single question you have about it. Mm. And you'll get to the place as we explore those questions together that um, you'll see that Jesus is remarkable in his own right. He doesn't need me to defend him. He doesn't need me to, um, you know, give my 18 proof uh, points for the resurrection, although that helps a lot of people. Um, he simply is beautiful and majestic on his own. And, and so for me, the certainty, any certainty, and again, I don't mean intellectual, I mean relational certainty, comes from Jesus and then works outward. And so for me, I don't, I don't accept the whole Bible because it's the whole Bible. I, I love Jesus, and then I look at how Jesus looked at the Bible. I don't accept uh, the teachings of the church because they're the teachings of the church. I look at Jesus and what he taught, 
and then hold up the teachings of the church against those. Make sense? So, so to me, the faith rests entirely on the reality of life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that's it. Now, once, once we're into that conversation, I'm on the surest ground of all because Jesus turns out to be freaking amazing. And, um, and, and the teachings he was introducing into the world, and I'm not saying there aren't other amazing people. Of course there is, but I do think there's something absolutely unique and compelling about him that makes him worth orienting your life around. And, um, and when you begin to do that, then the teachings become self-validating. What I mean is when you open yourself up to the way of Jesus and you, and, and he tells you to forgive your, uh, enemies and love them Mm -hmm. and you actually start living that way, then you see the great wisdom of, of what it is he's saying. Um, when he, when he talks about understanding that we actually live in a world that's at war with itself, uh, and you begin to things begin to be put into place uh, because you now understand. So, so that's what I mean by self-validating. There's a sense in which once you begin the way of Jesus, it becomes confirming. And it sounds like also in that uh, going back to the brake test uh, analogy is you still have to test it. Yes, you've tested it a hundred times before and it's always worked, but this could be that one time it doesn't work. Exactly. And and so so what are you left with? You're left with either I'm never going to drive because I don't, I, there's no guarantee my brakes will work mm-hmm. or you drive. Right. And when it comes time to stop, you press the brakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're, you're halfway to being an OCD therapist already. I mean, that's, that's, that's hit and run OCD in, in a nutshell. You just got to drive. Oh, wow. Maybe today's the day that they're not going to work. Well, that's anxiety, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's, my, that's my anxiety talking to, right? Because right. I'm, I'm a ruminator. Join the club, a man. catastrophizer. Yeah. So I, I'm always, man, if there's anything wrong in my eternal life, I'm like, what is this? And am I still feeling it? And oh, So let's talk about that. So my, my contention is that feel is a four letter F word. <laughs> it's, it, I mean, we, we give so much credit to the feeling that we have. I mean, a, a lot of people, even yeah. in, especially in faith, give so much credence to what they're feeling how they're feeling and you know we 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 talk about feeling like feeling close to god feeling saved those mountaintop experiences sort of things what what role does feeling play in one's religious life and how important is this uh, for a genuine connection with god oh that's so good um as with almost everything people have gone to one or two extreme uh, one mm. of two extremes and so you have a, a very high degree of intellectualizing in the church and the dismissing away of any sort of experience, any sort of mysticism, any sort of, um, you know, spiritual giftedness that involves the affections and the imagination on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you have the anti-intellectualism that simply doesn't care much for doctrine, but whatever it is I'm feeling, uh, and I elevate feeling over everything else. And, um, and so, so you have both present in the body of Christ and I would, I would, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, it seems that by personality or, um, or, you know, parenting, we naturally gravitate towards one of those or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so then the, the work of God in us becomes, um, opening up the other one that we don't naturally gravitate towards. So, so for some of my charismatic brothers and sisters who are into the experiences of God, 
hallelujah, don't, please don't abandon those. Uh, but there is a sense in which they have to be bounded by something. And that's when you, that, that's when you would encourage um, the study of doctrine and, and uh, historical perspectives on theology and so on. And for my brothers, of which I am one, who love historical theology, um, for me to open myself up to the experiential part of the Christian faith has been super interesting. Um, and so, uh, so to answer your question first, um, God created emotions. They are to be welcomed. Jesus experienced them. The incarnation blessed, you know, showed them that they are blessed. Um, they're all to be welcomed in the life of faith. Absolutely. Absolutely. Utterly. They'd be integrated into your personhood, integrated into your spirituality. And we see that all throughout the Bible, right? The Psalms in particular, joy, sadness, anger, hatred, jealousy, right? I mean, uh, just the, the, mm-hmm. the beauty and the glory of the human heart. It's a lot of scary feelings you just mentioned right there to a lot of folks. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But part of the life of faith is recognizing, and this is what my therapist said, uh, and this was super helpful. And so I encourage therapy as an act of spiritual discipline if you find the right therapist. Um, he said, you have to come to the, the conclusion, Mike, that you are simultaneously the world's biggest asshole and incredibly loved uh, and gifted by God. And those are b- both of those things are always true of you. Mm. Um, and, and if you can live in the tension of them, you won't use your religiousness to try to escape or buffer either side. And what he means is, as a pastor, right, I get paid to be religious. Um, uh, when I'm... When I'm when I am in touch with my inner a-hole, um, there's a great deal of shame mm. uh, and a great deal of condemnation. Um, when I'm in touch only with, hey, I'm glorious and awesome, there's a great deal of pride and a great deal of narcissism. And, um, and so each side needs the other. And in a similar way, uh, the life of faith is to be wrestled through with deep emotion, emotionalism, of course, uh, and deep uh, loving God with your mindedness, you know, also. And so, so for to just, you know, I know I'm over answering the question, but you would but never be accused a, of doing that. Uh, no, 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 never. Uh, but, but there is a sense, there is a sense, Kevin, where, you know, I mean, you, man, you teach this stuff and know it. Um, many of us deny, suppress, our desires and our emotions in the name of Jesus following. Mm-hmm. And that is deadly. That is deadly. The, the, the way to deal with sexual temptation is not to pretend that you don't have it. Um, it is to lean in. It's to acknowledge it that you have it. Oh, yes. And right. all of its perverted forms. Even. Mm-hmm. Um, it's to, it, yeah, and that doesn't mean we're out, you know, <laughs> working that out publicly. But it does mean... That, that I, I begin to see myself holistically before the God who sees me holy, mm. right? And holy means W-H-O-L-O-Y there, um, that he sees everything. And is it possible? And this is what, and again, I'm sorry to keep going, but w- with my kids, my biggest, biggest challenge with my kids is to, is to convince them that they're loved even when they're bad. And uh, because they're just so naturally performance based and parental and, and so much parenting advice is so much uh, of just raising moral children. And that's that's not the goal of, of parenting as Jesus followers. We don't want moral children. Um, we want children who are absolutely compelled 
with a vision of human life that so transcends being nice and saying thank you and you know being nice to your sister or brother mm -hmm. right i mean so so to me one of the great things God has, has had to do with my feelings has been to try to convince me, and it's still a total work in process, that I'm still loved in my shame and I'm still loved in my badness. Uh, but that can only happen when that badness has been integrated into what it is I bring before God. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I always thought, I always thought, and a spiritual director of mine said this, I always thought prayer was a, a, an excuse to be good. He's like, dude, prayer is not a reason or an excuse to be good. It's uh, it's a place to be honest. Mm. And that was massively liberating for me because then I can go before God and say, man, I am really, really, there's this dark spot in here that is really, and I can't blame mm -hmm. it on anything. It's not just a one-time thing. It's sitting there, baby. What I love about all of that is that you're, you're acknowledging that, yes, there there has to, there isn't just one side over the other. It's holy or unholy. It's pure or 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 right. uh, disgusting. It's that, yes, we have both of these sides to us, and right. while we work towards one, we accept that this other one is going to come along with us and is going to yes. kind of be there and just kind of the people that, that we are. So so often I hear folks will talk about like the, the fact that, you know, some days they don't feel saved or they don't feel like uh you know yep, connected yep. with god and therefore they believe that they've you know they've lost their their salvation you referenced the hardness of heart they kind of go well i don't feel connected yeah. well i must be you know i'm like pharaoh i'm hard-hearted and you know therefore right. i'm cast away um right. and and within that my my kind of feeling back to your wedding analogy is you know there i, I certainly acknowledge that i love my wife but there are some days that i'm completely annoyed <laughs> with her and frustrated with her and i don't feel the lovey-dovey happy feelings all the time that's but if right, someone were to right. say hey kevin do you love your wife of course i would say yes right how would you and i know we're, we're buttoned up against the end of our time so uh, i, I want to be oh, respectful kevin, of that these are such good questions man. what how would you it, how would you counsel someone who's in that state where they're not feeling really connected with god though to your point about psalms you know they're they're still the act of faith is they're going back to the god they feel disconnected to but yes. they feel disconnected yeah. how how would you help someone just look at that feeling oh that's so good i mean the first thing is to resist the temptation to fix mm. and so so uh, I would want to enter in with that person and say, and listen, tons of listening, um, trying to identify patterns or maybe things that God's up to that they're not seeing. Um, cause I can so much more easily do that for other people than myself. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so first is just to say, this is a natural part of the life of faith. You don't have to be afraid of this. This doesn't have to be scary. The, the, the greats, not only in the Bible, but um, uh, so many of the, the mystics and um, have written about this, that this is nothing to be ashamed of or afraid of. That would be the first thing. It's to be welcomed as part of the life of faith, like everything else is. Mm. Uh, the second thing I would do is um, you, we would go to those relational analogies, right? So let's say you feel really distant from your father. Are you still are you still the child of your father? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, right? And are there things you can do to manifest that closeness? Yes, but there's nothing you can do to earn back the sonship or daughtership, mm. right? That you feel disconnected from. So, so all we're working any any to dos are just manifesting the closeness that's already there and been declared. 
And so, you know, for me, I, I, there are all sorts of things I've done when I felt far away. Um, one of them is just be around people who don't feel far away. <laughs> another one is to be around people who do feel far away and to realize that's a normal part of faith. Mm. Uh, another one is to simply, you know, use your imagination to read the Chronicles of Narnia, um, to read uh, works of fiction that uh, are stirring um, and, breathe, and breathe courage and lightness and faith and those sorts of things. Um, uh, I've, I, I went down to Disney World and I was feeling like I, I just hadn't heard God's voice, which is such a weird thing to say. But I felt like mm. I hadn't been led by God tangibly in a while. Yeah. And, and for me, this is so lame, but for me, um, Epcot uh, is this, it's this park at Disney World. And the part of Epcot I love is the place, there's, it's this, on this lagoon where there are like nine or 11 countries that, mm-hmm. that are kind of, you know, physically represented for some reason. I just love that place. And so I went down and uh, my wife was great. She let me fly down by myself. And I spent two days, two and a half days walking around mm. just saying, Lord, I'm here uh, and I'm here to listen, listen to you. And this has always been a place that speaks to me. And, and when you know it, um, there was some, some cool stuff. Uh, that was very, very powerful and tangible. And then when I came home, and that was, I don't know, a couple of months ago, there hasn't been a, a darn thing since. Mm. And um, and so in the moments when I'm tempted to get discouraged, I just go back to that moment. I recorded it. Exact, I mean, it was it was unmistakable. One of those unmistakable, like, like whoa. Like, I was sobbing after this kind of thing. But man, that is so the exception right. in my spiritual life rather than the rule. It's periodic. Oh, irregularly period. And fleeting yes. too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. And, and, and the reason, the reason for that um, is A, the human person could not sustain intima- intimacy with God for any length of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we disintegrate. I mean, there's just, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like a paper yeah. cup trying to drink in the ocean, right? You just can't do it. Right. Um, but, but there also is a sense that what God is aiming for is not our certainty mm-hmm. and it is not our um our our you know spiritual goosebumps it is our trust mm. that even in the midst of not seeing we walk even in the midst of not hearing we walk mm. even in the midst of not wanting to walk right we walk yeah and, it's, and so much of that is you're just speaking to the the importance of the walking not just the importance of the drive to do the walking but but doing the steps and doing the steps in an appropriate fashion, not doing it. Well, you know, if I, if I do the walking, I'll get, I'll get the result. It's maybe I'm not going to get that result of that feeling, but I'm going to do the walking in, in a typical fashion. And this is so big, Kevin, this is so big. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll get there. The goal. Go ahead. You're good. good. You're a freaking expert. Go. I think I, I think I was at the, at the end of what I was going to say. Well, then let me jump in. Then jump up. in. <laughs> You're bringing the hot fire. No, no, no. But this is all just hard won experience. <laughs> if the goal of walking is to get an, a preordained outcome, then you're not really walking. The goal of walking is to abandon the outcome. Oh. And, um, and so for me, like so my, my battle with anxiety changed. Mm-hmm. When the goal wasn't to get rid of anxiety, 
like the goal was to walk through life with anxiety or in spite of anxiety um but it wasn't to get rid of anxiety Mm. and then through medication and therapy and exercise and all Mm -hmm. of these you know combinations of things the anxiety very much lessened and and for a season has gone away Mm -hmm. if the goal of your walking, your spiritual disciplines is a preconceived idea of what your relationship with God will look like, then you're not walking. That's not, that's not walking. That's just calculating. That's, that's, that's just formularizing, right? It's like marriage. It's back to marriage, right? I can't calendar and formularize my wife as a human person. She is out of my control with feelings and emotions and history of her own. Mm-hmm. And so my job is to walk, not knowing where the sucker's going, mm-hmm. just knowing that it's been worth it this far and that I want to see what happens. Mm-hmm. And so with Jesus, if the walking is, I, I've got to get this certain kind of, of relationship with God, then you're not walking at all, right? You're calculating. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the life of faith is a walk. And it's, it's a walk where you can't predetermine the outcome. You know, it could be cancer at 30. It could be, uh, it could be you lose your kids. It could be, and, and, and that's how I've always used faith. I've always used faith as an insulator against fear and against anxiety, that if I'm just faithful enough, then bad things won't happen. Mm. And um, that's game ball approach. Yes. Oh, and it's taken, I mean, and I'm still not out of that. I still think that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least I've kind of woken up to the, oh, that's what I'm doing again. That's right. what I'm doing again. Oh, man. So anyway. uh, Mike, this is, you've, you've, you've put so much into this half an hour of our, of our talk. I appreciate oh, all, all of this. Um, I, I, I'll tell you, if we had another four hours, I could keep asking you all these questions, but I know we're, we're getting to the end of our time. So I'm sorry. So yeah. it's all right. So thank you so much for all the time that you've given. And um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll direct, uh, direct my listeners to your podcast as well. But uh, again, thank you so much. Kevin, you are welcome. Hey, thank you everybody for making it through that uh, that interview. Uh, I, I had such a great time uh, uh, chatting with Mike. It's always great to chat with Mike about uh, uh, kind of theological issues or kind of asking some of these hard questions. And uh, I just learned a ton from uh, from chatting with him. So I hope you did as well, and hope you enjoyed that conversation. So as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I'm going to be uh, going a little bit further into what I was talking about in terms of the three levels of faith, and we'll just go over this very briefly because ultimately. None of this is really central to the issues of OCD, other than the fact that OCD and anxiety can take what we'll call opinions and persuasions level beliefs and make it or kind of elevate it to the level of convictions level, meaning stuff that is central to what it means to be a follower or a believer uh, and or what it means to be saved. So, kind of, uh, it, furthermore, uh, opinions and persuasions, thoughts, or beliefs uh, are, are then experienced with the intensity and even the beyond the intensity of convictions-level stuff. All right, so again, this, uh, 
model of belief was put together by Dr. Alan Schulz, and he's a theologian for Campus Crusade. And I'll, I'll put a link up uh, on the uh, episode page for those interested in this. But he, he talks about how these three levels of faith um, uh, that people experience, and it's kind of the, the concepts that we believe and the intensity with which we believe them, but also how central that they really are to what it means to be a follower. And I'll say that, so he, he wrote this particularly for kind of a Christian background, but I'd say this really applies to pretty much every faith background. So he talks about three different levels, convictions level, persuasions level, and opinions level. So convictions level are going to be central beliefs uh, to your faith. So in this example, Christian faith, uh, that's crucial to salvation. Now, these are going to be core issues that would define someone as being a follower of that particular religious belief. Now, these are these are going to be considered the most important and central things that you have to believe uh, in, in order to be considered as part of the mainstream group of that religious body. Uh, and again, these these beliefs are going to be held um, across the board with with all mainstream uh, uh, churches or, or, or those groups, the overwhelming majority of those churches. Now, this is going to differ from persuasions level. Now, what persuasions level beliefs are, are beliefs about which are we personally feel certain, but as the article says, but we can still fellowship with other Christians who disagree since they're not matters central to the gospel and or the historic Christian faith. So, what does this mean ultimately? I'll translate what that means is that it says that a persuasions level belief is something that is really important to the individual, and the individual or the group can feel really certain on it, so certain that they might call for a specific designation of a church or kind of creating what's called a, a separate denomination of church. Like you can think about um, uh, Methodist versus Presbyterian versus Unitarian versus. Um, non-denominational, uh, evangelical free, all these are different kind of denominations. Now, it, these persuasions level beliefs would create kind of a difference in it, but it wouldn't be enough for someone to say that that belief would exclude them from actually being considered a Christian. So, you'd still say that this person is kind of w- still within the group or the tribe or however you want to refer to it. And the article is careful to point out, and the, the author is careful to point out, that the difference between convictions-level per, uh, convictions level beliefs and persuasions uh, isn't the intensity with which we hold it, but is the centrality of it to what the Christian belief is. Now, lastly, there's going to be opinions level. Now, these are going to be, as the article says, beliefs, desires, or wishes, which may not be clearly taught in the scripture over which believers may legitimately differ. It goes on to say, implicit in this third category is the assumption that there may be more than one correct Christian view of this issue. So ultimately, this is not a central issue. This is something that's going to be kind of across the board, that a lot of other people can believe this stuff. This is going to be stuff that that people may believe or think or, or find really cool or important or they really like it this way, but man, it is not central to what it is to be a Christian or to be a, a Muslim or to be Catholic or any, anything across the board. Some of the examples, perhaps between persuasions and opinions level, like a, uh, within the persuasion, some of the examples from the article are how baptism is done. So perhaps you can think about like dunking versus sprinkling of water, um, that sort of stuff. It's a, a particular 
person might find it important, but ultimately that is not important. It also says, you know, kind of end time stuff. It's maybe important to the individual, but it is not ultimately central to the belief about what it means to be a Christian. Opinions level stuff is even more superficial than that. The examples of this might be the order of church. So, should it start with music and then have the teaching and then have an offering and then do more music? Or should it be um, teaching at the beginning and then baptisms and then personal testimonies? And ultimately, it, it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. Um, other examples might be just the type of music. Now, if you're in a religious group, you know that music is apparently central to everybody. It's the most important thing. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. This is part of the opinions level stuff that's not central. Another example might be, and I think this this really gets at, uh, I think for some folks with religious uh, anxieties, is uh, the type of clothing that people wear to church. This is an opinions level stuff. It ultimately doesn't matter as part of being central to the belief or what it means about you or what it says about your faith. Um, I work with a number of folks where what they wear to church can be a huge concern. Now, as I mentioned earlier, OCD, anxiety, uh, diagnosable uh, uh, clinical anxiety with regards to a religious faith, um, will elevate these persuasions and really these opinions level thing to the intensity of convictions level, meaning that it, it, it becomes central to what they're focusing on, whereas the convictions level stuff is ultimately the things that they ought to be focusing on, but rather things get switched around. So, um, not to belabor that any more than I already have. If you have more questions about that, again, go to the episode page and I'm going to have an article listed there uh, uh, for you to read. All right, so this question comes from either, I'm going to mispronounce this name, it is either Ryle or Riley, R-I-L-E. So, if it's either one, uh, I I think I hit either one of them. One of them has to be right, I think. But um, I'm going to go ahead and call it Riley, Um, but it might be Ryle. Either way, here's their question. Can OCD create fake romantic and sexual thoughts and attractions? All right, Ryle, Riley, I don't know, either one. Um, Thank you so much for this question. Uh, Again, to anyone out there, it means so much that you would ask these questions. And uh, this is the whole point of this podcast is to be a place to uh, ask these questions. And I'm going to do my darndest to answer these questions as best I possibly can. So right off the bat, uh, this is what I was thinking. This question sounds like a reassurance question. Meaning, it sounds like this is a question that that you might have asked before, you might have asked a number of people before this, and you're just kind of condensing it right down to what you're afraid of it being. And now, if you're wrong, I am going to explain a little bit at the very end, but it does sound like a reassurance question. Um, Meaning, or for this, it also sounds like you're asking kind of the secondary obsession, which is you're, you're kind of dealing with dealing with the question of where this thought is coming from, um, how it's being there, what this thought kind of means underneath it, um, as kind of a backwards reassurance. It kind of goes like this. If I can know, if I can know for sure that OCD can create false or fake thoughts, sexual thoughts or otherwise, then I know it's clearly not from me. And then you can say, oh, good, I'm not gay, it's just OCD. 
Did you catch that? So it's, um, can OCD create fake romantic or sexual thoughts? Okay, if OCD can, that means that I have plausible deniability to say that it's not truly for me, but I can say, good, if OCD can do this, then it's definitely not me. Oh, good, I'm straight and I can be happy again. So, if it is a reassurance question uh, for you, Ryle, or Riley, um, stop listening. Ultimately, eh, go ahead and listen. You can keep listening because um, I'm going to go further into this. Here's what I'll say about this OCD doesn't create your thoughts. I know in therapy, if you are in therapy, you, you hear people talk about, you know, we kind of externalize our OCD. We'll say, oh, OCD made me think this. Let's talk about what OCD looks like and how it's shaped and, and how it's presenting itself to you today. Now, I even do this too. I talk about it like this all the time and because externalizing OCD as this thing that's not you actually helps in the therapeutic process. But... We also need to remember that your brain ultimately creates your thoughts, either through kind of reinforced or, or correlated or just kind of random chance. Um, your brain creates these thoughts, and then your OCD grabs onto it. And then we have kind of this hard time categorizing this thought as useless or as unhelpful or as exaggerated. OCD then goes on to question whether or not the thought was important or questions why it's there, what it means about me, uh, and ultimately, and really what's going to happen now that I've had this thought. So that's where OCD comes in. Your brain creates the thought, OCD latches onto it and skews it and screws it right up. Because furthermore, to expand out from just folks with OCD and anxiety, it's that Everyone has these thoughts. Every single person out there who who's listening or not listening, or every single person that you've met has these thoughts. They're, they're not really special to those with OCD. We all have violent thoughts or blasphemous thoughts or sexual thoughts, antisocial thoughts or existential um, or gen- just generally odd thoughts uh, and, and, and odd questions that roll through our brain. Um, it's kind of a brain thing. It's it's kind of what it does. You can think about it like um, uh, uh, under or behind the scenes, un, underneath it all, in the subconscious of your brain. I so rarely talk about the subconscious, but uh, it's just kind of stuff that we're not attending to. It's that our brain kind of thinks in synonyms and antonyms. So it thinks in similar things, and then it thinks in opposite things. So with your thoughts, if you think about like a, a furniture. It does like a, a spider graph. You remember those are a scatter plot. Uh, not a scatter plot. It's like a spider gram where it's like a central idea, then you draw a line, and it's like all a bunch of connected ideas. So if you think furniture, it thinks a couch and ottoman and table and chair and um, uh, things like that, TV stand, all sorts. Of, that's furniture stuff. Now, from those, uh, you can make a spider graph of each one of those things. So if you thought furniture, you can think of uh, chair, and then you can branch it off, and chairs have, you know, there are different types of chairs and different elements of chairs. So let's say it's a the chair's arm, the spidergram off of that, and then you can think of a, a, a human arm. So it creates all these different things. Now, your brain kind of takes these things and, and spidergraphs its way through your brain, connects these two ideas that are really far apart and puts them together and presents them to you and say, hey, think about this for a hot second. It might not make any stinking sense, but then again, that's kind of where creativity comes from to a certain degree. Where if we have two thoughts that don't make any stinking sense, but we put them together and we go, oh my gosh, I never thought about it that way. How interesting, how insightful, how helpful. So, 
this is brain stuff. The problem is with uh, those of us with anxiety is that we get mad at our brain for doing brain stuff, um, for thinking the way that it's supposed to do. Or if we think about, again, we think about uh, antonyms as well. We think about, if we think good stuff, we think something bad. If we think something holy, we think of something unholy. It's kind of the way our brain tends to work. It's brain stuff, and it's not bad. All right, so why do I go through all of that? Uh, Riley, Ryle, whatever it is, um, for the purposes of treatment, it ultimately doesn't matter where your thoughts come from, whether or not OCD can create fake romantic thoughts or real romantic thoughts, is that in that moment, you have that thought, you have that feeling. And for you, it's it's clearly an ego dystonic or, or uncomfortable thought, um, meaning it's that not something that you want to feel, it's that something that you, you are feeling, though. What our brain can do is it can produce um, kind of sexual feelings or sexual thoughts or or even attraction types of feelings in unexpected, undesired, inconsistent, odd places or odd people, or I'm saying odd meaning atypical for us. So it can present those. In the moment, though, our brain goes, or our OCD grabs onto that and goes, oh my gosh, well, why am I having that feeling in this moment? I shouldn't because I don't. And that's not what that means. And that's not what I like about me. But for whatever stinking reason, your brain said, hey, you're looking at that guy, or for women, you're looking at that girl. Here's a groinal sensation, or here's a butterfly feeling, or here's a sexual thought with them, or here's kind of some romantic y types of feelings, however you experience that. Fake or not, you're feeling that in that moment. What we call that then is egodystonic or uncomfortable, ego alien, as some people will call it. Our job is ultimately to resist the urge to continue to go down this line of questioning of where it came from, why I have it, what it means about me, but to sit in that discomfort and say, yeah, that's kind of the thing that I thought. That's the feeling that I had. Huh, weird. Not what I wanted. But that's where it was. Okay, and I'm going to move on. And it can feel hard to do, and it can feel very odd to do it, because, again, we feel like our sexuality is so important to us. But try practicing that. Resist the urge for a while to continue to ask these questions about whether or not your brain or OCD can create these fake romantic thoughts. But ultimately to say, I'm having this thought and this feeling right now. Yep, it's there. Now, if you're further along in the exposure process, you can say, you know what? Yep, that's my true sexual thought. That's who I am. And uh, maybe, this is the, maybe this is the start of it all. I'm now gay. And here it beca- here's my life is now going to change. But we'll see if I keep having more when I have more. Now, if you're not quite there yet, practice this acceptance piece. That's also a great place to start. So again, um, thank you so much for this question. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for making it through this episode, this long episode. I do appreciate you uh, sticking it out and listening to the whole thing, uh, if you have. So if you liked the episode, uh, if you like the FearCast, please go over to iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast. Uh, give me a review, a star, a like, a thumbs up, or whatever it, it is on that platform. 
Um, it ultimately just helps other folks uh, find this podcast and find this information. Better yet, uh, share it with someone. If you find found this information helpful or interesting or challenging in some way, uh, share it with someone. Tell uh, tell uh, someone about it as um, if you feel like it might help them out. Word of mouth is always the best uh, uh, advertising that this podcast can get. If you have any feedback for this episode or have any particular questions that you would like uh, for future episode or have any follow-ups to the stuff that we talked about here, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com. Uh, you can go over to the submit a question link. And uh, if it's a question or comment or you said, hey, it sucks and I can't stand to listen to it, but for some reason want to tell me that, um, you can uh, always send it there. Those questions will always get to me. If you have a question, you do not have to use your real name. Our questions uh, uh, name, or a questioner's name rather, uh, Riley, Ryle, I still don't know. Um, that may or may not have been his or her or their real or fake or, or either name. So we'll never know. But you can choose whatever name you'd like for a little bit of anonymity. Furthermore, as far as the, uh, uh, the Faith and Doubt series goes, if there is a, a particular religious background or religion that you would like me to go over, uh, I can try to connect with someone of that religious faith. Um, but if there's one you really would like me to discuss, let me know, because um, I would love to get this series as, as, as broad uh, and as in-depth as I possibly can. So um, uh, that will, uh, I, I just need a little bit of feedback from you guys if, if that's something that you would like. So, um, as always, uh, the FearCast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you have any questions about uh, treatment or getting further into treatment, you can go to fearcastpodcast.com, go to the Find Help link, and uh, there'll be some links there that will help connect you to someone who can um, help you along this road. And as always, at the very end of this, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.